The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We continue to look at the 1989 World Series champion, the Oakland Athletics. Truly one of the great teams of all time. And we're going to get the perspective from the guys they played against. Will the Thrill, Will Clark will be with us. A baseball legend, Dave Dravecki, one of the great stories, inspirational stories in baseball history. How about the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey? And how about one of the biggest A's fans and what a career he has had, Matt Vaskersian from MLB Network and ESPN. But we'll start with a guy that that year in 1989, he was the NLCS MVP. He's a six-time All-Star, a Gold Glove winner, a Silver Slugger Award winner. He's led the NL and RBIs, and he's in the San Francisco Giants Wall of Fame and played on truly one of the great base college baseball teams of all time at Mississippi State. Here is my conversation with Will the Thrill Clark talking about the 1989 World Series. Well, I can tell you, growing up as a kid, my next guest, he was one of my favorites. He's a six-time All-Star. He's a Gold Glove winner. He's led the league in, in RBIs. He's a Sil- Silver Slugger Award winner and truly one of the great personalities in our game and played on one of the great college baseball teams of all time at Mississippi State. Mississippi State. The great Will Clark is with us. Will the Thrill, how are you in Louisiana? Hello, Chris. Everything's going good down here. Uh, had a little rain earlier today, but it's passed through, and now it's nice and sunny. You know, before we get into 1989, I think about, because I've interviewed just about all of your teammates from Mississippi State, and I think about your guys' run there. And then I think about the 84 Summer Olympics. What a ride you had, college Olympics, before you got to the big leagues. Yeah, we, um, you know, we had, it started in Louisville, Kentucky with 44 guys, and they trimmed down to 25. And we took the 25 guys, and we went on a, a barnstorming tour. And we played something silly like, I don't know, 36 games in 35 days in 32 different cities, something like that. And then uh, we cut down to, after that was over with, we cut down to 20. And those 20 guys wound up going and uh, playing in the Olympics. So, you know, we had a pretty good, uh, you know, needless to say, talented lineup. But then also on top of that, we were playing pretty good competition. So it kind of got me prepared for pro ball. Yeah, and, and, and I know everybody talks about, you know, representing your country and doing it in, in another country, what this is the 84 Olympics. This is the famous Los Angeles Olympics. What was it like represent your country in the United States? You know what? That was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was in LA, like you said. And, uh, you know, that was also the, the same year as the uh, Michael Jordan dream team basketball team. And, uh, you know, baseball and basketball right there alphabetically next to one another and so you know when the 
when the baseball and the, and the basketball team got announced in the L.A. Coliseum with 100,000 screaming people going, USA, USA. I mean, that sort of kind of sent chills down your spine. You know, I think about the start of your career. It's not bad starting off your career hitting a home run off Nolan Ryan, right? Yeah, no, that's that's a pretty good way. uh, If you want (laughs) to script it, that's a pretty good way to jump into everything. (laughs) What was that like? Because that was at the that was at the old Astrodome. Yeah, it was at the uh, old Astrodome, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was an interesting field to play at, uh, but. you know, it was one of those things, you know, you pumped up for your first at bat and you got to get the butterflies out the way, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, third pitch into the at bat, he gave me a fastball out over the plate. And uh, when I hit it, you know, needless to say, you got no earthly idea it's going out of the Astrodome in center field. And uh, when it did, I just kind of like floated around the bases. And, uh, you know, after I high-fived everybody and, you know, sitting on the bench and everything sort of kind of, came back down to earth again, uh, Chili Davis was sitting next to me. And I looked at Chili and I go, next time up, he's going to drill me. And Chili goes, oh, hell yeah. And the uh, <laughs> so next time up, I was on pins and needles going up there. Oh, that's great. And then I think about, you know, we, we've been we've been reminiscing about, you know, for both the Giants and the A's have been doing this. We're reminiscing over great years as hopefully we're going to get baseball back here pretty soon. Uh, obviously. 1989 was a great year for you. I mean, you you, you hit 333, 23 home runs, uh, 111 RBIs. You were in a, a batting title fight against Tony Gwynn, which I got to see growing up in San Diego. Your OPS was 953. You have to look back at 1989 as a great – oh, you led the league in runs too, by the way. Uh, you, you have to look back at 1989 as a great year for you. Yeah, you know, 1989 was kind of – I guess you want to say in the middle of everything for me because uh, that was a that was a run that I had of about three years in a row where I played every day and uh, you know being out on the on the field that much uh, you know it sort of culminated in '89 just being uh, locked in up at the plate I stayed locked in didn't really uh, you know get any 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 downtime I guess you want to say in in pretty consistent year all the way around and. All of a sudden, you look up and, uh, you know, Kevin Mitchell won the MVP. I was second that year, uh, the 89 NLCF MVP. You know, we, we beat the Cubs in the playoffs and make it to the World Series against the A's. So, I mean, 89 was really a special year. Yeah, and, and you know, we just did the uh, long gone summer on ESPN, the home run race of 1998, but that was a – you, you were in a race against Tony Gwynn for the batting title, and the two of you just day after day, all the hits going back and forth. And it didn't you guys end up playing the Padres the last series of the year? Yeah, last series of the year, and the batting title came down to the last day of the season. Um, Tony and I were separated by thousands of a point, and uh. You know, he went out there and, and he had a, a chopper that found a hole and a broken bat that found a hole. And, and uh, you know, I, I actually, believe it or not, I had three line drive outs. And so, uh, you know, Tony got a few hits and, and wound up beating me for the batting title last day of the year. But, uh, you know, he and I were standing on first base and talking. He says, 
he says, the batting title is great. Don't get me wrong. He said, but I'd like to be going to the playoffs like you are. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the, that's the kind of relationship Tony and I had. I mean, we were really, really good friends. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I, I think about the two of you. I mean, there's, there's, there's certain guys, of course, you love being a major league baseball player, but you love baseball. I mean, that's, I think the thing for me that's always been apparent is that you truly love the game. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up with it, uh, you know, it was, it was a major, major part of my life. And now that I'm retired, uh, you know, I'm taking to heed, um, some of the, the uh, lessons that I learned along the way. And then some of the veterans told me, Hey, pass it on to the next generation. And so I am uh, currently one of the special hitting instructors for the Giants, and that's what I'm trying to do is pass along what we learned and uh, pass along the next generation. Let's talk about the 1989 World Series because I I truly believe this 89 A's team is one of the best teams we've ever seen. They're a complete team. Once they added Ricky Henderson and gave that element at the top of the lineup, you look at starting pitching, you look at bullpen, you look at defense, you look at power, you look at – talk about what it was like to go up against the 1989 Oakland A's. Well, I mean, you know, they they had the uh, stacked lineup from top to bottom. And, uh, you know, you talked about Ricky Henderson, but, you know, Mark McGuire, Jose take all those guys. But they had a cast of characters that, that really, you know, pitched in quite a bit. You know, Carney Lansford, Jerry Steinbach. Uh, Dave Henderson, and, you know, they really, really were a very, very good offensive team. But then as far as pitching goes, I mean, they had, you know, Mike Moore and Dave Stewart were their two tops, uh, you know, leading off the rotation. And then you had uh, Dennis Eckersley coming in the back, um, you know, with uh, Rick Honeycutt back there as well. So the earthquake hits. I know the A's went down, back down to Arizona, and they continued to play and play games. What did you guys do during that time off during the, after the earthquake? We stayed uh, in San Francisco, and we did a lot of community service. So, you know, uh, needless to say, the, the, the Bay Area got hit pretty hard. And so we, we stayed around there and, uh, you know, served meals and went out into the community. And then we also, you know, worked out at Candlestick as it was getting uh, worked on to uh, to get ready for the completion of the World Series. You know, at uh, this time, that this pandemic, and we don't know, you know, what kind of season. Hopefully we're going to get back to playing baseball soon because I think it would be great for people and help us heal once again as that's what baseball has done for us. You were supposed to have your number retired once the Giants start playing. Do you think that will still happen this year, or do you think that will be put off till next year? No, it's, it's going to be put off till next year. Um, the Giants and I talked about it, and uh, they want to uh, do it uh, in front of a packed house, uh, you know, there in San Francisco. And so we're just we're just going to wait for, you know, baseball to, to get back out on the field and have, have the, the fans in San Francisco be able to attend it and, uh, and, and go from there. You know, uh, the one-two punch of you and Kevin Mitchell was pretty special, and – uh, the boogie bears, we like to call them. What what was that like for you for for you too? Because that that was a one-two punch. That was you know when we talk about the Bash brothers and McGuire and Conseco, you guys had had your version. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, 
you know, it, it was it was kind of the top part of our lineup was was pretty pretty solid. I mean, uh, Brett Butler led off, and uh, he had a over 400 on base percentage. Uh, Robbie Thompson uh, was our number two hitter and and could you know do a lot of bunting and hitting and running and stuff like that. Really good player in his own right. Myself, and then uh, Kevin Mitchell followed by Matt Williams. So. You know the the first five in the order we we could we could do some damage pretty quick and put up some runs in a hurry. Well, it is always great to have you on the program. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to reminisce about 1989, of course, about your great career. And uh, be safe down south. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you out at uh, Oracle Park when we get this thing going again. That sounds like a game plan. I look forward to uh, to seeing everybody in the Bay Area again and. Uh, you know, in the meantime, be safe, safe and vigilant. From Will Clark to Dave Dravecki. Dave Dravecki, a survivor of cancer, had his arm and shoulder amputated. He truly is an inspiration to so many people. And he's arguably the nicest guy I've ever met. And it's great to have him back on the program and talking about 1989. He didn't get to play in that World Series, but he was definitely there. Here is Dave Dravecki. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live is one of the most special guys this game has ever seen. What an inspiration he is and was a terrific pitcher back in the day. Uh, He remembers this World Series, uh, 1989, but uh, the great Dave Dravecki is with us once again. It's It's been a while since we last talked, but it's always an honor to have you on the program. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, I, I think about your career and now what you do for the San Francisco Giants. What is it like to be able to inspire so many different people? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a privilege and an honor. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, I was out of the game for so long that I never thought I'd ever get a chance to um, participate in the game um, like I'm doing today as an ambassador for the Giants. Um, it's been such a gift. Uh, the Giants were gracious enough to um, ask if I wanted to be a part of the organization as an ambassador and to represent uh, the ball club in the, in the Bay Area. And um, I, was, I was overwhelmed um, because I never thought there would be another opportunity to participate at any level with baseball. And so to do what I'm doing today and to spend time with the fans and to hopefully be an encouragement um, to people who have experienced similar things to me has just been a privilege and an honor. Yeah. After the surgery, you end up becoming a a motivational speaker and that is just so powerful Uh, when you get up on that stage and you're looking out to all those people and, and you're moving these people, you're helping these people. What has that Mm -hmm. been like your career as a motivational speaker? It's overwhelming because, first of all, um, uh, just getting the privilege of being able to share my story with folks. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, I'll take a step back. Um, it's wonderful to be able to get in front of, you know, 500 people or 5,000 people or 150 people and share your story and encourage them. But one thing I've learned is that there are a lot of amazing stories out there. And whether you have the platform, of many or just one-on-one, um, it's recognizing the power of your story to bring encouragement into the life of someone else. And so 
for me to be able to um, to travel the country for the last 30 years now telling my story, um, quite frankly, has just been overwhelming. It's been an awesome experience. I've traveled to places I would never go. And I met people that I would never have the privilege of meeting. And so I consider it an incredible blessing and a gift um, to be able to share this story. And, 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 and if I can encourage just one person, Chris, when I'm out there, then it's been worth it because um, that's what matters most to me. And how great is it? It looks like where fingers are crossed, we're going to have baseball <laughs> in 2020. Yes, I am so excited. I called my son this morning and we were talking about the fact that it's it's back on. And obviously, I know they have to work out some of the details as it relates to um, just uh, safety protocol and things of that nature. But I'm sure they'll be able to work that out and put in some safe parameters for the players and everybody else that's involved um, in this coming back. But I think it's so good for the fans. I think it's so good for our country. Um, we need this. I mean, it's America's greatest pastime. And to be able to, even if we just have to sit in our family rooms and watch, TV ratings are going to you know, go off the charts because people are just longing for baseball to come back. And even if they can't get to the stadium, to watch their team on TV and to cheer them on um, is something that they have been waiting um, uh, very patiently for. And so I think it's a wonderful thing, and I'm so excited. Uh, I could care less all the dialogue around, well, it's only 60 games. I don't care. I just want to watch them play. I just want to see baseball again, and so I'm really fired up about it. Can you imagine as a pitcher, you're in a 60-game season, and every game, I mean, you can't go on losing streaks. It, it, this thing's going to happen so fast. What do you think the pressure is going to be like on the pitchers? Because you just, you just can't have a bad outing. Well, you know what? I think these guys are, I mean, they're, they're seasoned and, and they understand um, what they're facing. And, and I think, um, I don't think the pressure is going to be any greater than it normally would be. I think where it's going to be difficult and I've talked to Robbie Thompson about this and uh, a couple other guys. And, and one of the things that's different with a pitcher versus a, a regular player is getting that arm in shape, baseball shape, and ready to go out there and play. And so I think that's going to be an adjustment as they move along into the season. And I don't know how many guys are going to be able to go very far, you know, out of the chute. And so um, it's going to be a different mentality. And, and so I don't know that the pressure is going to be greater than what it is on a normal day because these guys are really good about blocking things out and focusing on the zone and getting guys out and doing what they do best. So, you know, there may be some added pressure there, but I don't know how much they're going to feel it um, in relationship to once they cross the line and the umpire says play ball. Yeah, how about all these guys throwing 98 to 102 miles an hour? Can you imagine back in your day you throwing 100 miles an hour? <laughs> I only dream about it, Chris. I only dream about it. <laughs> I like, would. It, it's, it's amazing. Like, yeah, it is. Every guy that comes up, I mean, every reliever we see coming up, Dave, they're blowing 100, 101, 102. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I am. I'm amazed at the at the strength of these kids. You know, and I think. One of the things that's happened in the game is, you know, when I played, we didn't have the science that the game has today and, um, and the technology 
you know, from equipment. I remembered, you know, uh, Norm Sherry running into the weight room, which was probably no bigger than a, a bathroom um, for the Giants because, you know, weights were so frowned upon. And he would stand there and watch the things that I would do just so I wouldn't get hurt. And, and it's changed so much because strength trainers and nutritionalists and chefs and all these things have changed in the game that have allowed these athletes to be stronger um, and, I, and I think better prepared um, it, it, from a physical standpoint in particular um, to go out there and play the game at a, at, a, at a high level. And so these kids that are blowing it 96 to 100 mile an hour, it's so impressive. But the thing that is disconcerting to me in relationship to this or current concerning is that these kids go out and then they blow out. They literally blow out and they're ending up having significant surgeries, you know, and, and longevity in the game just isn't something that's talked about anymore. Yeah, you know, back in the day, I'm thinking like, you know, 1984, that Padre team you were on that went to the World Series to take on the Detroit Tigers. And you're thinking about guys like Goose Gossage. We talk a lot about Raleigh Fingers. You know, these weren't relievers that, you know, came in and just pitched one inning. Goose could come in and pitch two, three innings, and he was blowing. He was he was blowing heat coming out of the bullpen. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we were being teammates. Um, he was, he, he taught me so much about preparation, so much about, um, in-game, um, uh, approach. Uh, you know, I always asked him, why do you pitch so fast? <laughs> he said, because I don't want to take any time finding out what the result's going to be, Dave. He said, the bottom line is I want to see whether or not I'm going to succeed as soon as I can. And he said, the other thing is I know players play better behind me when my rhythm is quick versus slow because now they're on their toes instead of their heels. And so, you know, it was, there were so many things that this guy was able to teach me, you know, goose was one of those guys where, you know, I was a middle guy. So as a middle guy um, out of the pen for the Padres early on in my career, I wanted to be able to take the team two, three, sometimes four innings into the game when there was a bad start so that I could get it to the seventh or the eighth inning and Goose would come in and go two or three innings. I mean, that was the mentality because you knew that this guy was going to go out there and blow gas for three innings, not just for an inning or not just for a batter. And I, I think that's the difference. And, and I, don't, I, I don't know where all that falls into place scientifically or even with stats and all that kind of stuff, bud, but I got to tell you, he was one unique guy and an incredible relief pitcher and Raleigh Fingers and Eckersley, so many of them, man, that, um, you know, uh, that, yeah, those guys were, those guys were what we call gamers. You know, they went out there and they played hard and, and they were able to go two or three innings to get a save. Yeah. Before we get into the 1989 world series, you know, labor strife as a player, I, I, I think about you coming up, in 1982, you come in right after the 1981 season, which was, that was crazy. It was two different halves. It was, it was a unreal year. And then there always seemed to be labor strike. What, what is it like going through that as a player when all you want to do is play? Well, it, it, it is difficult. Um, in 81, I was with the Amarillo Gold Sox. And I remember specifically Bobby Tolan coming down 
and I wondered why he was there. And it was, it was around the strike. And so, um, you know, so, so we really didn't get in that year. I didn't get the feel of that as much because that year in Amarillo, Chris, um, our pitching staff, I mean, you know, we had a great team and our pitching staff, our starting rotation, the, uh, the record for complete games in the Texas league was uh, 46 by a staff of five starting pitchers. And that year with Eddie Watt, um, our manager at the helm, um, and Frankie George was our uh, uh, assistant coach. Um, we shattered that record as a pitching staff and had 64 complete games. Um, so our season was consumed by what we were doing, and we really weren't all that aware of what was going on strike-related. We knew what was happening, but um, you know we're, we're playing our season. And so even following the next year, I mean, I had no clue what had happened. I was oblivious to all of that. So here's this young kid who goes to AAA in 1982 in Hawaii. And I mean, my wife's pregnant. I'm going to become a dad. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call on June 8th of 1982 with Bob Cluck telling me I'm going to the big leagues. So my world's been wrapped up in just playing baseball and not being as aware. Um, Now, years later, I would act as the player rep. And so I got a little bit more involved in that stuff. And, and it was always a concern. You know, you never wanted there to be conflict between the players and the owners. And, and you always sat back and wondered, why can't we just, you know, why can't we get along? And yet at the same time, you know, the players were unified. And, you know, uh, those were my experiences during that period of time in my career. But I never had the experience of actually being a part of, um, an actual strike and recognizing or realizing what was going on with it. You talk about a small world, Bob Cluck. I used to go to the San Diego School of Baseball, and I actually went to school with his daughter, Jennifer. So you talk about a small <laughs> world, Bob Cluck. Uh, yeah. 1989, obviously you're hurt, but that was a terrific Giants team. Let's face it. You got Will Clark, Kevin Mitchell, Matt Williams. Uh, you had a terrific pitching staff. But you're going up against one of the most complete teams I think I've ever seen in my life, the 1989 Oakland Athletics. Yeah. Yeah, they were a great ball club. Um, You know, Mike Moore, who won two games in that World Series, um, uh, is a good friend. And I remember when the earthquake hit, uh, he and I literally were – sprinting out to the parking lot side by side when we felt the earth, when the, felt the ground shaking. But um, yeah, we came up against a very, very good baseball club, a very complete club as you have defined it. And yet our ball club, you know, I think there was something very unique and something very special about the Giants. Um, we had a lot of talented guys on that team, but there was just something really special. Um, you know, I'm in the middle of reading Joan Ryan's book, Intangibles. And I got to tell you, um, she does a wonderful job of unlocking this whole idea of team chemistry and talks a lot about the 89 Giants and what that was like. And I've got to tell you, Chris, um, that was just something, even though I only participated in two games, there was something very special about that ball club throughout the whole year and even moving into the World Series against the A's. And I mean, we ran up against, uh, you know, the best team in baseball that year. And, uh, and, you know, and, and they handed it to us 
and and took it in four games and and uh, there's a lot of drama surrounding it with the earthquake and all those things. But still, uh, when you looked at that ball club and that lineup um, and what they were able to throw out there on the mound day in and day out, um, yeah, that was a very very special club in the Oakland A's. I mean, just what it must have been like when that earthquake hits. I mean, just the fear and terror that goes through you. Well, yeah. I mean, I've got my wife in the stands. I've got my parents in the stands. I've, I've got my literary agent that's in the stands. And, and you know, I, had, I was just getting ready to sign a book contract with, with our first book, Comeback. And so all these people that I know, the publishers are there and all these people are there. And then the earth starts shaking and you're wondering, man, are we going to get out of this? Is everybody going to be okay? And, you know, and then you start seeing through what, what little news we could get um, about the Bay Bridge and then the Marina District being on fire. And, you know, all of a sudden, all these things start hitting you. And at first, you're almost in this state of denial, even though you've just experienced this thing shaking. And then reality hits and, it, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this is real. And then all of a sudden you begin to read and hear about the tragedies that are occurring as news trickles in. And now you're going, oh, my gosh, lives are at stake and lives are being lost. And and then the next thing you think about is my family. Oh, my gosh, my kids are not here. The babysitter's with them down in Foster City. And how are we going to get there? This is going to be a log jam. We're never going to get home. And so all these things are racing through your mind. And, and when they finally had, you know, canceled the game and, and we, we, we got ready, all of us got dressed and we started taking off for our families. It took two and a half hours from candlestick to get to foster city, which is what a 20 minute drive. And, and, and we're, we're, we're wondering and just praying, God, please don't let anything happen to our kids. And, and so fortunately, we get there and the entire way there, Chris, it was blacked out. And when we got to Foster City, the lights were on. And we pulled into the apartment and we checked the kids were fine. And the gal that was babysitting them said, yeah, we felt the earthquake and only a few things got knocked around in the apartment. But, um, you know, when we, they, had, they had taken to the, the kids to the pool and when the earthquake hit, I guess it became a tidal wave in the pool and there were a couple of men there and the kids were in the pool and they were struggling to get out my daughter and my son. And this man came over and just grabbed them out of the water and, and saved them. Um, and so fortunately they were able to get out and then, you know, they waited until we got home and, you know, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it was, it was just crazy. It was, it was, uh, it was surreal. I mean, you just, you're just sitting there with the world series and all of a sudden um, we've got this tragic thing that's happening. And, and uh, so it was really scary. It was really scary. Yeah. And it's not like you had a cell phone and you could call home. <laughs> you know, isn't that crazy? Yeah. We're talking about 19, we're talking about 1989. That was like 30 years of 31 years ago. That's not that long ago. And there were no cell phones. And now what kind of phones do we have? I mean, we're walking around, we're walking around with things that, that actually, you know, you're talking about something and the next thing you know, there's an ad that pops up for the thing that you're talking about. 
you know, and you're wondering what in the world's going on. How did my phone know that I wanted to buy uh, um, some bands to strengthen my arm? You know, so we've come a long way with technology, but man, back then, no way of communicating, which made it even worse because your fear level would go, you know, just jump a couple decibels higher and, uh, you know, just worrying about, you know, if everybody's okay. So, yeah, that was just a really crazy time. Dave, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. You're an inspiration and everything that you do to, to help people have better lives. is just something very, very special and continue the great work. And once we get baseball going again, we'd love to have you back on. Oh, I'd love to do that, Chris. I really would. And I'm really hoping that the A's finalize and get that stadium there. It will be so good for the city. And I love Bo Mel. He caught me. And I, I just think he's one of the best managers in the game. And I'm so excited for what's happening to the A's. So it's been wonderful talking to you, buddy. Be safe there in the city. and We'll talk soon. Okay, you take care. From one baseball legend to another, the face of the franchise, the great Ray Fossey joined us. And we talked a little 1989 and we talked baseball. Ray joins us every single Wednesday on A's Cast Live. Wednesday is known as hump day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Ray, how are you? I am doing well, Tony. How are you and Cody doing on this fine day when we have some great news? Isn't that great? Oh, I, I, I mean, seriously, I, I, I was pulling my hair out. I mean, at some point <laughs> you're like looking around going, boys, we got to get to playing baseball here. This is being, this is ridiculous. And basically they didn't really agree on anything. So we could have had baseball already. We, we could have had that July 4th start. I Ray, Why, why can't, why can't the commissioner and the players union, why can't they come together why is there so much so much animosity? I mean, we have we have this great sport. Everybody's making a lot of money. I just don't get it. Tony, personally, I think a couple of things. Uh, number one, the CBA collective bargain agreement expires at the end of the 21 season, December. We know that. So posturing for that, I, I, I say forget about that. This is a, a different type of a year. And, and, you know, as we've talked before, I think it's something that you really have to look at 2020 everything that's happening in the world, not just the, the U.S. of A., but the world, and you have to look at it as something that's just hopefully this year. Worry about the CBA expiring at the end of 21 at that point. Don't do that now. And I think what, to, to me, the biggest thing is that the, the fact that the emails and text messages, you, you know that last week that Tony Clark and uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred, the two sides, got together face-to-face. And there was some thought that there had come, come to an agreement. And, and you know, we, we always say that if you can go face-to-face -face with somebody, it's going to be a lot better than if you're trying to do it because you don't know what kind of emotion is involved when you're texting or emailing. So uh, I think that's one of the biggest things because in the past, and, you know, fortunately there's not been a work stoppage, and this is not considered that considering what is happening with, with the virus, but since 1994, and you, you think prior to that, and I know I was part of that in, in, the, in the past when I was a player representative, it was done face-to-face -face because there was not that much social media. So 
you know, hopefully between now and going forward, that can be done because I think work can be accomplished if you're doing it face to face. But I, I just think that if you look at what now has transpired and, you know, let's hope and pray that the virus doesn't kick up and, uh, you know, put a halt to it. If it does, then we have to deal with that. But I agree with you. We could have been starting baseball on America's birthday that week. That would have been special for all of baseball, the country, but it's not going to happen, unfortunately. And But at least they're going to be back in spring training, effective July the 1st, and we'll have baseball at least 60 games, and, and hopefully it will carry forward into postseason, and we'll see what happens. Well, every win is going to seem that much bigger, <laughs> and every loss is going to seem – it's going to be like death. When you lose three or four games in a row, oh, my God, Ray. Tony, I was thinking the same thing. Of course, all the writers are looking at various teams and where they were, uh, you know, this time last year, or if they played 60 games where they were, the Nationals wouldn't even have been in postseason. And, you know, it, it does take away from the fact that it's a marathon of 162 games. But you again, in the postseason, again, as we've talked about, and this is comparable to that, because you get off to a bad start you don't have a lot of time to make it up to get back into the swing of things. I think that goes from the personal standpoint of the players, but also more than anything from the team standpoint. Now, I look at the A's with their five starters. I, I think that's going to be exceptional because if you do the math, each one could have 12 starts, assuming they're healthy, a strong bullpen, great defense, great offense, you know, and, and get over the fact that there's not going to be fans in the stands, but you're going to be playing for something. But I, I think there's some things that were left on the table. That, uh, that that could have been resolved, especially in postseason, because right now, unless uh, things happen miraculously that they're going to be fans of stands, players are going to be playing in October for nothing. I mean, they're playing for the ring, obviously, a world championship ring, but postseason shares are based on the gate, how many people are in the seats. And at this point right now, that's not going to be happening. So a lot of things left there, but uh, I, I just think the biggest thing that, it could have been done earlier. They could have come to some agreement. Uh, and, and once the CDC and, and, and various states uh, said, okay, we can play, then it should have been at the point of said, okay, here's the timetable. Let's get it going and play more games than what they're going to play right now. You know, and Ray, to me, whenever it's a level playing field, I, I, I hate when people go, oh, it's going to be an asterisk. I don't, everybody's got to play yeah. six games. It's the same. For, you know, you go back to 1981, you know, the Dodgers are still the champions. They got the ring. So whoever wins this, everybody everybody had to play like this, and that's just the way it is. Let's go. No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think it is the fact that they're going to play 60 games. Everybody will play 60. And I think we're all waiting, and unless you know something that I don't know, uh, as far as the schedule, but it looks like the, it's going to be the 10 teams in the West, the Central, and the East, and, uh, you know, then the interleague play accordingly. But uh, it will be the 60 games for everybody. Um, interesting, Tony, I saw today that um, after 60 games, uh, there was a period of time, Tony Clark, who's the executive director of the Players Association, had 13 home runs after 60 games. And basically, that would have been leading the league. There are going to be a lot of uh, numbers that aren't going to be there uh, that we would have seen throughout a 162-game schedule. But, again, everybody's going to play the same number of games. There will be a world champion. Uh, Paul Hornings out of uh, Cleveland wrote a notice that, of course, he's talking about the Indians uh, ending their uh, 72 years of uh, frustration and not winning world championship, that he said he can envision uh, Francisco Lindor 
getting a base hit to win the game, but nobody to celebrate because there's nobody in the stands and you can't high five, you can't hug, you can't do all of those things. So it's going to be different. But, you know, uh, again, Tony, we talked about how in 1989, the unfortunate earthquake that occurred in the Bay Area, a devastation for the, the, you know, the whole Bay Area and the A's and the Giants playing the World Series. Uh, there were a lot of changes because of that and then not the distancing, the social distancing and all that. But uh, a lot of the celebrations, you don't want to do that. And I'm sure that's going to be comparable this year uh, with regard to October baseball. But it looks like, and again, unless something happens between now and when the season actually begins, that it's going to be 10 teams um, or, or, or 12, I guess, or maybe. No, I guess you'd, you'd have um, you'd have the three division winners and then two wild cards. Yeah, so 10 teams from each league. Uh, so I, I – I don't know how they're going to do that because now they have three divisions. So, but, but basically, it's not an expanded playoff system that they were trying to negotiate, uh, from what I understood. So unless that happens, too. Um, Tony, correct me again if I'm wrong, because I have read that negotiations can continue between now or when spring training technically begins uh, 2.0 on July 1st until the beginning of the season, that they can continue to negotiate on some of the parts. Is that true? Yeah, you can. I mean, not nothing's set in stone. I mean, we heard we heard when they first agreed that there wouldn't be the universal DH. Now there is going to be the universal DH. So yeah, they, right. they, you you can keep talking through the whole thing. They just, I mean, let's face it, guys knew. Hey, I, I still want to make some kind of money. You know, Thank that's you. yes. You know, like Tony Clark can sit there and and as finally, you know, players can be like. Hey, I, I know I'm not getting all my salary, but I rather, you know, I rather get something than nothing. <laughs> something is something and nothing is nothing. Right, Tony? I mean, that's basically right. the way the way it is. And I, I agree because, you know, and I think the unfortunate thing, there was going to be some of the money that was forgiven that the players were given up front uh, during that, what, first couple of months of the April, May that there was no baseball. But, you know, in the negotiations, uh, you're going to have some players really not playing for a lot, if anything. And then if you get to postseason and no fans in the stands. So, uh, you know, it would behoove the players, regardless of what they're getting, to play the game. Because next year in 21, let's hope and pray that we're back to normal, to where fans are in the stands. Uh, free agents are free agents and, and players are arbitration eligible. Some are not. Uh, but if they have another year of service under the belt, and they need to play because, like we talked to, 18 months is a long time between the time you play an actual game until uh, you start another one. And at least they're going to play 60, and those teams that participate in postseason can play longer. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in winter baseball, too. Maybe some guys will be trying to play winter baseball to make up for what they're not getting now and, um, and be ready even more so when spring training comes around in 21. I've got a feeling with this August 31st trade yeah. deadline, we're going to see some salary dumps. Uh, I agree. I, I think Lindor, who you just you just talked about, Arenado in Colorado. I think there's going to be teams that are going to they're going to try and get rid of contracts. They're going to try and go lean and mean. You know, I agree with you, Tony, and and I agree also that's going to carry forward into the uh, off season and the signing of free agents and contracts. And, uh, you know, many years ago in the eighties, there was something called collusion. That's not going to be the case now because how can you expect an owner who is not making money, who is losing money technically 
go out and, and spend a fortune on a free agent. And, you know, there are some that can because of certain circumstances that they might have. But I, I think the game is going to change, especially once it begins through the offseason next year. And let's hope it does get back, because at least if it gets back to normalcy next year, with fans in the stands, everything is back to normal, then, then you can look at that. But I agree with you with the, uh, the deadline now, August 31st versus July 31st. Um, clubs are going to look, and, and back to your original point about getting off to a good start and not losing games uh, to put yourself in a deep hole trying to get out of it with only 60 games to be played all season. That, to me, is something that the, the owners, general managers, are going to consider come August 31st. Yeah, and, and isn't it great, Ray? We got the Astros who won 107 games, and now we get to add the Dodgers to uh, our schedule who won 106. <laughs> no, that, that, that is amazing. But, uh, you know, I, I think it has to be done this way. And, and I know from the broadcaster standpoint, uh, all the games are going to broadcast from the Coliseum, home and away, and no traveling because it's just, first of all, I can't travel on the – the charters and you know that's kind of the way it's going to be but it does change the division alignment to where uh you know in in the past with the interleague play it rotates by division each year every year for three years but uh it's it's changed considerably for the 60 games that are going to be played uh, this year and you know it, it, it's different but boy I, I just wish it could have all been done to you know maybe play more games uh, and be able to eventually get fans to say, we don't know how that's going to work out, but uh, at least at this point, baseball is coming back. That to me is the most important thing. Yeah. I can't wait to have it back. And we were going over all the slow starts all these years. It didn't matter if it's Art Howe, it's Ken Maka, it's Bob Melvin, uh, you know, the big three, Giambi, Tejada, Ando Yuenas, Cespedes, you know, I mean, what is it, Ray, for the last 20 years, for the most part, the A's after 60 games are usually under 500 or just right around 500? Why is that? I've, I've felt, Tony, personally, and again, it's strictly my opinion, that because the turnover personnel, not only with the A's, but a lot of teams, but it just seems like, and again, I go back to 2012. Remember when Bob Melvin and the team went to Japan, and he said how much that helped the team because there were a lot of new players, it seemed, that really didn't know each other. But that trip to Tokyo to start the season, the week, to flying on the plane, spending a week in Tokyo, playing the three games or, or two games and then the exhibition games, he felt that, or, or at least felt that, that they got somewhat familiar with each other. And I think over time, and, and I could be wrong, uh, it's, again, it's just my opinion, but I think it takes time. and. You know, we, we've talked about like the, the Dodgers when they had that infield, the, the Orioles had their infield. When you could put a team out and you may make uh, a few changes, you may add or subtract two or three players, you have the bulk of the team together. So everybody's familiar with each other. And, and I think for some reason that if you have a personnel turnover, that it takes a little while. And, and the good thing about the A's this year in 2020, based on what they've done the last couple of years, you look around the infield, the outfield, the pitching, you're not seeing a lot of turnover. You're seeing somewhat of the same players. So I think in that regard, that is something that could help the A's in 2020, considering it's going to be a 60-game schedule. And I, I just believe that uh, it, it's going to be a special time. And, and I, I 
again, mentioned 1989, no celebrations because of the devastating earthquake. It's going to be something similar for the world champion in 2020. And it is going to be a world champion uh, unless something happens with the virus that it comes back and then they have to somehow, uh, unfortunately, uh, cancel the season because of it. But if, if, you, if all teams can play 60, they can get the postseason games in. I think going into the offseason, while there may be a difference in the way players and teams are negotiating contracts for the future, that might be different. But at least having two months of regular season baseball, postseason, I think at that point, People can forget about what has transpired in the first four months of what should have been the 2020 season. I will never forget being in Japan and I'm in the media room atop the Otani Hotel to use the phone uh, to call home and talk to my kids. And I remember I'm in the corner and Ray Fossey walks in and there's that guy. And I don't know what you guys were talking about, but I could tell the conversation didn't go great. And when I got off the phone, I went up to the guy. I'm like, you know who that is, right? And I, that's Ray Fossey, two-time World Series champion. He went, oh, my God. I'll never forget that. I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I'll never forget that. Well, Tony, I, I hate to say it, but I don't remember it. But uh, I, I don't know what it might have been, but uh, I've never been one to tell anybody who I am, what I've done in the past, because most people could care less. But uh, – you know, it, it was an interesting trip. I'd never been to Tokyo. It was great to see the, uh, the, the, the games played in Tokyo, the Tokyo Dome. And, and again, they started up, haven't they, uh, mid-June, like June 19th, didn't they start? And they, from what I heard, that their commissioner uh, was going to allow fans to be in the stands. And you could see, and, and when we saw the excitement of the, the fans cheering and the bands and all that going on at the Tokyo Dome, that was pretty special. But uh, I, I, again, I enjoyed it. It was a special time. And I think from the A standpoint, playing the season the way they did, finishing game 162 and beating the Rangers and winning the division one day in first place was the final day of the season. That was a very, very special season. Um, but I'm glad uh, you were able to get through and talk to your kids and your wife during that uh, conversation. So I wish we could have bands like they do in Japan. I know. So, so, so people, you understand each team has a band and each player has his own song. So when the yeah. player comes up, they start, I'm like, it, it, it's entertaining as hell. You know, I, I took out my phone and videotaped it. And, and I look at that on occasion. Uh, it is, it is great because of the cheering. And I, I agree with you. You know, the, the A's have a great fan base. They have the right field, uh, bleacher guys down and, and girls and ladies that, uh, that cheer in the left field kind of the same way. And they have that constant banging on the drums and things like that. But to your point about an actual band and a cheering section, it's there. And uh, when a certain player comes up, we have walk-up music here. They have walk-up bands that play the songs. <laughs> you know, and you're right. It's an experience that, uh, that, that you, you leave there and say, wow, you know, this is unbelievable. But, you know, as a player, and I always think about, People talking about the World Series, say, oh, all those people and, you know, 49, 50,000 people in the stands watching. And what are you thinking about? You don't think as a player about anything except the game of baseball. You know, your surroundings are, are almost non-existent. And I think to some degree that can help the players in this 60-game schedule if no fans are allowed in the stands. I think that's something that if they get immersed in what they're trying to accomplish, hit the ball, catch the ball, pitch, and do those things, yeah, it's going to be different, but I think the bottom line, when it's all said and done, they're going to play the game 
just as if there's people in the stands. But but I think the fact that as a player you do kind of erase everything that's around you, concentrate on what you're doing, and when everything is done, and actually probably when you watch the games on a replay and you hear and see the reaction of the fans, then you might think about it. But as a player, I know I didn't even think about it one bit. It was a matter of who who was pitching on our team, what I was trying to do to help get the other team out, and then trying to score enough runs to win the game and then be world champion. And I, and I think that in itself is going to help the players in this uh, upcoming season. Now, I don't know what the number is that Mookie Betts turned down. I believe it was north of $200 million. Yep. Um, is he going to regret turning that down? Tony, I think what's going to happen, and the A's have their own Marcus Simeon, uh, who's in a similar situation due to make some, some very good money this year to be a free agent next year. I think you're going to see guys who uh, are going to play their 60 games and instead of testing the market, maybe play, assuming there'll be a full season next year. Remember, again, Adrian Beltre did it when he left Seattle. He went to Boston for one year, capitalized on a great season with the Red Sox, signed a five-year contract with the, uh, the Rangers, spent the rest of his career there. I just think there are certain players, Mookie Betts uh, in particular, I think, because as a, as a team, as an owner, you look at 60 games versus 162, and you can think about what a player has done throughout his career, five years for Mookie Betts in this case. He's been a phenomenal player. He's been a world champion. And, but, you know, now you look at 60 games, and maybe his numbers aren't what they would have been with 162 games. And I, I just think you might see some players saying, uh, you know, I'm going to stay, in his case, with the Dodgers and maybe Mark Simeon with the A's. Played another year, still, you know, on a one-year contract, and um, I think it's an arbitration at that point. And you know, you, you played the season, and then think about the uh, the po- or the um, the free agency after a full season and not a sixty game. And yeah, and, you know, Lindor's turned on a lot of money as well, and like Mookie Betts. And uh, I don't know what Marcus Simeon, if the A's have been talking to him, but uh, I know Lindor was offered a very, very good contract to extend his. Uh, you know, we saw what Arenado got extending with the uh, with the Rockies. But, you know, they're, they're going to be the August 31st, man. I can't agree with you more as far as what might be happening at that point with teams that have some huge contracts, and especially guys that, you know, that they think they're going to be losing anyway, free agency, like Lindor. Um, I think he has, what, this year, next year, and he's a free agent after 21. And if that's the case, where Betts is a free agent after this year, as is the A's Marcus Simeon, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I just think it's going to be different for the players and their agents to think about what they want to do. And, uh, yeah, a lot of money they turned down, and I'm sure they're hoping they don't re- regret it. You know, and I can see the Dodgers who have a ton of money because yes, they their TV contract's so outrageous. All right, yep. Lindor, come on down, Lindor, play shortstop. And then <laughs> – then, then we're going to get either Arnado or Chris Bryant to play third, re-sign Mookie <laughs> and now all of a sudden every guy, the whole team's an all-star team. Yeah, yeah, it, isn't it amazing? But the, the great thing about this great game of baseball, Tony, you can have an all-star at every position that does not guarantee winning. We have seen teams attempt to buy a winner, buy a world champion. It doesn't always mean that. And, and you know, I, I don't know what it is about the game, but it, it's just something that, whether a team that's facing a team of all-stars, they play up a little bit better, a little bit stronger, but uh, there's nothing guaranteed in life, obviously not guaranteed in baseball. And what might be paid 
works out beneficially for the individual player, but from the team standpoint, you know, maybe it doesn't work out as much because, you know, it, it's, it's one thing. Well, look, look at the Yankees. I think over a course of, uh, what, 10 years, they spent over $2 billion in salary and never won a world championship. Over $2 billion. So, you know, that they had a quality team, but they didn't win a world championship having spent that kind of money in that 10-year period of time. And so, again, I, I just I think it's great for the players that they can get those contracts, but it does not guarantee that the team is going to be walking away with a world championship. There's going to be an outlier that makes this postseason, maybe even a couple. There's, there's going to be some team that we thought was going to be brutal, and they're not, now they're going to be competing for a championship. Tony, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that. And, and I, you know, I, I think right now about the Seattle Mariners, who the A's could not beat in the early part of the season last year. Look where they finished, the, the Mariners. And so if, if you're able to get off to a good start, and, and I know there are writers who are writing it, and I believe strongly that there are some teams that, that maybe are going to get off to a good start and be the team that you're talking about. And let's not forget a guy like Justin Verlander. He had a groin injury. He's going to be back 100%. Um, across the Bay of the Giants, uh, Sandoval is, you know, he's going to be okay. Um, who else am I thinking about? Oh, Aaron Judge. He was supposed to be ready to play in August. So, you know, there are players who, under normal circumstances, would not have been able to play due to an injury because of this unfortunate shutdown. They've been getting well, and their teams are going to be benefiting from those players coming back healthy. But uh, I, I agree. I think there's going to be. You know, if if I were one of the 30 teams that may be going into the season, you say, we don't have a chance, this is much different. And and it's an opportunity for you can do something as a team that's very special in a shortened season, a much shortened season, that you might not be able to do in a regular season. And I was thinking about the Mariners, the Seattle Mariners, because what they did against the A's in Tokyo and coming back to start the season, the A's, for some reason, could not beat them. Slow start from the A's, great start by the Mariners, and the A's ended up winning. And, and going to postseason, whereas the uh, the Mariners did not. But in a shortened 60-game schedule, that could change dramatically. And, and to your point, somebody could come out on top because of the way they get off to a good start. So let's hope that – you know, I go back to Tony La Russa when he, he managed those teams, uh, especially in the late 80s, when they went to the World Series three consecutive years. His mantra was, guys, let's get off to a good start, have a great April, get off to a great start, let everybody try to chase us the rest of the season. And I think from the A standpoint, as we're talking about them specifically today, that the A's, once the season begins, get off to a good start, let the other teams in the division chase them. And if that's the case, then that would be the best part. And going back to what I originally said about the team coming back, you know, with Olsen second base is probably the only infield position that and and with the uh, the 30-man roster down to 28, down to 26, I think that's going to help the A's decide who's going to be the second baseman. But then you have Marcus at short, Chapman at third. You got Murphy behind the plate, and then the outfield. You, you've got guys who can play and are healthy and can play every day. And you know, even uh, Stephen Piscotti, he was injured. He was going to start the season on the IL, uh, so he's going to be able to come back strongly. So the team itself is going to be good. And I think that's going to help them get off to a good start because they have the main ingredients to be successful, pitching, defense, and enough offense to score runs to win ballgames. Let's end on this. When you were in Cleveland, you knew you were out of it by the first game. 
would any of your Indians teams have a shot in a 60-game schedule? Yes, I, I believe that because while we knew over the course of a long season we were going to lose, but in a short season, there is always a possibility. And, yes, we, there were some teams that I played on that it could have been much different, at least competitive. And now with the second wild card, you know, that adds another team. So, yeah, I, I, I believe that could have happened. But over the course of 162, no way. And that's why, <laughs> you know, that's why I had my uh, great teammate who told me, he said, you know, you want to play as a team, but you better think about it individually because when the team loses and finish in last place, when you try to negotiate the next year, it's going to be based on what you did individually. And those years were done prior to arbitration and free agency. So you know how that went anyway. But, uh, no, it, it, it's, uh, it is going to be a different time. But I think, Tony, the most important thing, the owners, players came to an agreement, and let's hope that everybody can get, come back and be able to play, and let's hope the virus goes away. And, uh, you know, of course, with the Phillies happening there and with the Rockies, a couple of players, um, you, know, you know, it's probably going to happen. But bottom line, let's just hope and pray that baseball comes back and play the 60 and postseason and then, see what happens in the offseason and and really be able to start 21 as if it's a normal season. Fossey, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. You're the best, Tony. Best to Cody the Commander, and look forward to seeing you in person very shortly. Thank you, my friend. Always great hearing from Ray. Can't wait to see him and get baseball going again. And a friend of the program, truly. As he grew up in the Bay Area, he grew up a huge A's fan. He's always repping the A's uh, when he's on MLB Network. Uh, He's had an unbelievable career, whether it's play-by-play, studio host, obviously the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN, and a host on MLB Network. Here is Matt Vaskersian. Well, it is always special when we bring the pride of Moraga, USC, MLB Network, ESPN on A's Cast Live because we know what a big A's fan he is, and it's going to be great to hear his voices. That's been one of the things we've wanted to do here on A's Cast Live is bring on familiar voices. And, Matt, it is great to hear yours. How have you been? Chris, uh, good, man. Good to visit with you as always. And I am in a lot better spirits right now at this hour than I was two, three, thirty. 60 days ago when we just didn't know what was going to happen. So look, it, it wasn't the agreed upon deal that I was hoping for because I was really hoping for expanded playoffs this year, but just the fact that there's going to be 60 games. um, I I am thrilled. I think it's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, we're so used to it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, not anymore, baby. This is a sprint to the finish line. And you know, for these A's players, it was one of the things I talked a lot about with these guys down at spring training was how important it is to get off to a good start because we just saw Houston win 107 games, and now you're talking about the West playing each other. That that brings into the, the Dodgers and their 106 wins. Uh, it, it's it, it's it, it's so important that if you're going to have any shot at being one of these postseason teams, you have to get off to a good start, and you can't have any hiccups. There's no doubt. I mean, look, and, you know, look, look only as far back as last year to the wonky start the Nationals got off to. And in a 60 game season, the Nationals don't even go to the playoffs and they ended up winning the World Series, as we know. And and conversely, 
you know, their teams had started out in real good shape. And then after the 60 game poll, they petered like, uh, the, the 2011 Red Sox that, that, um, on that very fateful last day of the season had that horrible come from a head loss to the Orioles. Uh, they started out in real good shape and looked like a juggernaut and then faded. So I think we as fans need to be prepared for two different types of interrupters. The, the good team that can't find its footing through 60 games and the team that nobody thought was going to be competitive that catches lightning in a bottle that ruins the party by, you know, by crashing the, the plans. And, you know, are the Marlins going to be a good team this year? I don't think so. But in a 60-game sprint, as you very appropriately called it, crazier things have happened than a bad team or what we thought to be a bad team getting hot. You know, I, I remember being in Texas last year when we are taking on the Rangers, and, you know, they had a better record than we did at one point. So it's like, but this is, uh, I'm seeing from CBS Sports, uh, I just got this notification, as as you know, Matt, every state, every county, every, everything's different around the country. But uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, I guess has been talking about possibly having fans at Astros and Rangers games. I mean, they'd space them out, but, you know, up here, that's not going to happen in Oakland and San Francisco. How about that? Potentially having some fans in Texas. Yeah, I saw that same note, and I guess uh, the governor kind of gave this passive type of blessing, if you will, for all sports venues, and I I, I spoke to somebody down there today about that. Uh, The thought is that he's trying to clear the deck as much as possible for football, which, as we know, is the, the lifeblood of the Lone Star State, high school football in particular, college football with so many different uh, divisions and levels of college football played in Texas. So if he can clear uh, the Astros and Rangers, and then maybe subsequently the Rockets and 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 maybe the Mavs, uh, he can blaze a trail, if you will, for getting football cleared for fans. I, you know, again, I only care about my game at this point, uh, our game. That's baseball, and I do agree with you that um, it, regardless of what Texas does. It's, it sure doesn't mean that California is going to open up to fans. And, and I, I guess we'd have to be prepared for it all year long, even through the postseason. But my hope is that by the postseason, there can be some kind of a fan attendance quotient in the ballparks. Because I talked to Kevin Cash today, the manager of the Rays, and I asked him point blank, like, when does it feel normal to play with no fans in a 60-game season? He said never. It's not going to feel normal at any point. So what that does to the, the intensity level, to the way the product plays on the field, remains to be seen. It could make some players better. It could make some players worse. That's why this is going to be so fascinating to watch. Yeah, working for the Raiders for years and traveling with them, um, I, I, I'm going to believe football is going to play when I see the ball kicked off. So I, I don't have a lot of faith in seeing football. We'll, we'll see yeah. about that. Um, thinking about, you know, going forward here, whether it's cash or it's Bob Melvin, the way you're going to manage in 60 games versus 162. And you got a little more wiggle room with rosters. Just what do you think the mentality will be like for a manager where, you know, there's sometimes where you understand you're going to lose, but in 60 games, you're going to feel that pressure to have to win every single game. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and I think we can only equate this to like when you're playing in September, um, only without the expanded rosters. And that is to say, there's just a lot shorter leash for, for players and, uh, and, and I guess elements of somebody's game to come around. In other words, guy starts slow out of the gate. Uh, you, you just don't have, you can't be afforded that time to let him quote figured out, right? You got to make a move. You got to get another body in there. That's going to be more productive. So if one, of, one of the guys that you're counting on, so let's take the A's for example, and the A's have not been, as you know, better than anybody, Chris, the A's have not been good starters the last few years, as good as those teams have ended up being April's and May's have not been when they make their hay, they get going in June. It's usually like a, weird circumstance like a seven game road trip to Cleveland and Detroit and they take off right they don't have that that luxury uh, at this point and you know maybe it's not the beginning of a season maybe it's the weather pattern maybe it's the marine layer maybe it's the air at the Coliseum who knows but uh, you don't have a chance to wait around and watch guys get hot you have to make sure you're pushing all the right buttons right now and you know they did bump the trading deadline back the trading deadline is August 31st, so you'll have about five and a half, six weeks of games before an actual hard trading deadline comes around. Uh, the taxi squad component is going to be interesting because each team is going to have a 20 to 30 men taxi squad, which is, is in, in a best case scenario, is located someplace near the big league city so you can have access to those players and get them up as quickly as possible. So for a team like the Toronto Blue Jays that has extended spring training in Dunedin, Florida, in another country, that's not ideal. Uh, and, and for the A's, uh, the AAA situation isn't as bad, but boy, in a, in a best case scenario, you'd have your taxi squad at Laney College and you'd be able to call a guy and get him in the game by the third inning if you needed him. Yeah, I mean, you could also put him down, you know, Stockton Ports is not too far away, so uh, that that'll be something that's a positive for the A's is they they'll have many options to keep their guys close. Uh, you know, back to the slow starts. I've been asking this for years because Matt, you can go all the way back to Art Howe, Ken Maka, uh, you know, Giambi Tejada, the big three. It's like ever since the early two thousands and all the way to now, when the A's have had good teams, they've always gotten off to slow starts, and nobody has an answer. Yeah, it is weird, man. And I, I, I don't know. It, this almost sounds like an amateurish thing to say, and maybe it is. But I do believe that weather plays a role in some of this. And I, I know that uh, the years I spent in San Diego with the Padres, when they moved into Petco Park, even in the Qualcomm Stadium days, you know, the June gloom and the May gray are very real things in San Diego County, especially when you're closer to the coast, as Petco Park is. And once the midsummer months come and the weather changes a little bit, I don't know, sometimes that just changes the way uh, play is affected. And I, I don't know if that's the case with the A's. I, I mean, I know it's not for lack of effort and, uh, and discussion because I'm sure that the very bright people that run the club are more painfully aware of this than anybody that they have not started out great. One of those starts this year and you're on the outside looking in. Again, there's no room for... Uh, slow start this year. How are you guys going to cover these players that say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. 
I'm I'm a free agent or I'm a young guy not making a whole lot of money now. We already got paid. I got a bulky elbow or shoulder. How do you think MLB Network will cover these guys? Yeah, it's interesting. I really haven't thought about that. I know that there have been a handful of NBA players who've already said they're not going to play. Um, I do not anticipate a big number of players in baseball at all. I, I think the 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 overwhelming majority of players are raring to go. If there's a player that sits because of health concerns, and like you know, let's take one team for example on this discussion, Chris. Take the Dodgers for example. They've got a manager who is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. They've got a closer who's got a very real heart condition. They've got uh, no fewer than two members of the coaching staff who are over the age of 60. And, and I don't even know about the rest of the traveling party, trainers, et cetera. So there are some high-risk people or higher-risk people that should they decide they want to sit, I don't think any of us should say anything about it if it's health. If, if it's a financial matter, to your earlier example, and a guy's entering a walk year and he feels like there's too much to lose and not enough to gain by playing this year, I think the way we'll handle it is just by forgetting about him. I mean, that he's choosing to be forgotten about by not playing. So I'm not going to judge anybody for it, but I, I wouldn't feel the need to mention your name at all if you're not out there. You know, we've been highlighting the 1989 Oakland Athletics, and we played the ALCS, playing the World Series, you know, against the Toronto Blue Jays, against the San Francisco Giants. I'm going to guess you were probably at USC at the time. That was my, that was my, I was out at that point. Yeah. I, uh, 89, uh, I remember watching that world series in my first post-college apartment, what constituted my first post-college apartment. <laughs> I got to think as an A's fan taking on the San Francisco giants, obviously the earthquake was horrific. Um, but winning the first two games and then going to candlestick park and sweeping the Giants as a kid who grew up here as an A's fan, what was that feeling like? It was pure joy because there was no team I hated as much as the Giants back then. And I, I you know, the, the characters on that team, and again, time heals all wounds. Like, I don't feel the same way about the, those Giants that I did back then. Um, but, you know, as a guy rooting on the other side of the bay, you didn't like Will Clark. You didn't like Roger Craig and the hum baby stuff. You didn't like Rick Russell. You just didn't like those guys uh, from, from Johnny Lamaster to Rob Thompson. I think Lamaster was gone by then, if I'm not mistaken. In fact, I think he was with the A's for a year or two after he left the Giants. But I, I just didn't like that team. And the A's handed them such a thorough butt kicking. It wasn't even a discussion. The only thing that kind of took the tarnish off of it, obviously, was the earthquake because – the, the national audience, which dwindled when it became a regional matchup, they completely blew off games three and four. Like there were people, there were a lot of people back then remembering the dialogue that didn't even want the World Series to continue. Like they were like, just cancel it. No, A's have a 2-0 game lead. <laughs> no, we're not canceling it. So I think that A's team, as dominant as it was, never really got its full due, its proper appreciation, because the narrative in that World Series became the earthquake instead of holy cow, the A's absolutely beat up on a pretty good Giants team and swept them. We had Will Clark on our last show, and he had nothing but total respect for, 
for that A's team because he knew about the power. I mean, they were a good team, as you said, but, you know, the A's were rock stars. I mean, you bring in Ricky Henderson, Jose Canseco's date Madonna, Mark McGuire's a monster hitting home runs. <laughs> Dave Stewart is is got the scowl. You got Eck closing. I mean, this is truly one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. I'm with you. I mean, you got no argument for me on that. Every every component was there: bench, bullpen, and that's you know that's when Tony had his system running at full gear with how to get the ball to Eck, and it became so easy to get the ball to Eck between you know the the Gene Nelsons and um, Oh, uh, Cataray, Greg Cataray was in that group. Rick Honeycutt was in that group. I mean, it became so easy because only an inning or two was asked of that middle bridge relief guy because you had, you had Stuart Moore Welch getting you six plus, if not more, every five days. Um, and then they, the fourth, fifth starter spots were kind of cobbled together yearly uh, piece, on a piecemeal basis. Remember Storm Davis having a really big year. With that vintage A's team, I don't think it was '89. I think it was the previous year. Storm Davis was good Kurt for them. Kurt Young. Kurt Young was great in '87, and I tell Kurt this all the time when I see him. In '87, he got into the All Star break in as good a shape as anybody to to be an All Star, and I'm convinced should have been there. And I think in '87 the game was in Oakland, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he and Mike Davis, who was one of my favorites, they should have been at the All Star game that year representing the A's at home. But back to '89, that team was dominant. Bench was great. Of course, Ricky coming back was was epic. But some of the uh, the quote unquote regulars on that team, Dave Henderson, who was one of my favorites, Carney Lansford, just so good to this day, still underappreciated how good he was. The only position that they turned over on those '80s dynasties with any regularity, for whatever reason, was second base. And uh, you know, it, it that spot kind of moved around from uh, Glenn Hubbard when they were building those teams. Um, uh, Tony Phillips played a lot of second base. He played a lot of everywhere back then. But with the exception of that position, you knew Steinbach was behind the plate. I mean, everybody was consistent and man, that team was good. It was just, those are the best baseball fan days of my life. No question. Let's end on this. I've been asking everybody. You're doing a deep dive on something. I mean, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, books, games, puzzles, in your household during these times, what have you guys been doing? Oh, man. Chasing kids around? <laughs> really? I thought, beginning of this, I thought, oh, this will be fine. I got like three-ish weeks, get the house straightened up, clean out some drawers, maybe catch up on some reading. Uh you know, update the data entry that I keep on players and teams for the season. I did all that and I didn't accomplish much else. Like I didn't write the great American novel. I didn't, I didn't even get as far as, you know, Tiger King or any of the Netflix stuff that everybody grabbed onto. I didn't watch the last dance. I mean, my day was chasing kids around and then trying not to go nuts, worrying about whether or not there'd be baseball. I wish I had a better answer for you, but that's the, honest truth well we've all been drinking a little more booze than normal there's no question about that <laughs> there's no question about that <laughs> uh, i heard somebody go god i haven't drank this much since college <laughs> yeah i don't even know if i drank this much in college i mean it's, yeah it's that that glass of wine with dinner that turned into more um yeah and again that kind of 
that kind of fed the paranoia over baseball not returning. You're just like, okay, I got to, you know, if it, the people that found stuff on Netflix and things to occupy their time, I tip my cap. I just never allowed for that. I'd watch an hour of garbage on Bravo and then I'd, you know, crawl into bed worrying about whether or not there was going to be baseball next day. Well, we are going to have baseball, and it's going to be great to see you on ESPN. It's going to be great to see you on MLB Network. We always appreciate the time. You know our fan base loves you. Be well, be safe chasing those kids, and we'll talk to you when the season starts. All right, Chris. Good talking to you, man. Glad to be back. Well, we'd like to thank Will Clark, Dave Derecki, Ray Fossey, and Matt Vaskersen. Hope you enjoyed A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.